Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This year is the 50th birthday of hip-hop, and like when you tune into the Grammys to watch their celebration, sure, it mainly focuses on New York, but Canada is and always has been a big part of the story of hip-hop. Ron Nelson is considered the godfather of Canadian hip-hop. He's been part of it since the very beginning, and he's here for a very rare interview about his legacy, about how Canadian hip-hop came to be, and why now is the time for his first rap album. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So yeah, welcome to a very special week here on Q. This year, as I mentioned, is the 50th birthday of hip-hop, arguably the most dominant genre. Genre's not even enough, like cultural movement in the world right now. And to celebrate the 50th birthday, we're having Hip-Hop Week here on Q, conversations with dominant voices in hip-hop in Canada and around the world, and also like the pioneers, the people you might not be as familiar with who are formative, who are incredibly important in starting hip-hop in Canada and around the world. It is impossible to think about hip-hop existing in Canada without our first guest today. That's why we wanted to start with him, even though his name might not be as familiar to you. His name is Ron Nelson. So Ron was a DJ in the early days of hip-hop. He had a show called The Fantastic Voyage, incredibly influential on Canadian radio. It was on campus radio at the time because there was no commercial radio for hip-hop in Canada at the time. In fact, there was no real institutional support for Canadian hip-hop at the time either. I mean, he didn't just play it on the radio. Ron also promoted concerts. He brought people like Public Enemy to Toronto for the first time. And he's so influential. Like Everybody in Canadian hip-hop, whether they know it or not, is affected by the work that Ron Nelson did early in his career. So you're going to hear Ron talk about the early days when hip-hop was just kind of something people talked about when it was just starting out. You're going to hear him talk about the systemic challenges he faced along the way and how it feels to watch Drake and Toronto hip-hop become as big as it is today. Great joy to sit in the studio and hear the story from Ron Nelson. Here's our conversation. It's really lovely to have you. We've been looking forward to having you for a long time. Glad and being here, man. So let's, can we go right back to the beginning? Yes. What, what role did radio play? in sort of your early years? What do you remember of like your early days listening to the radio? Early days in Canada? Um, well, you could tell me. Like, what, were the, what were the early days in Jamaica like listening to the radio? Um, so let's see, I, I was there till I was 10. So strangely enough, you'd think radio would be consumed by reggae music all the time when you're not from Jamaica, but Jamaicans are really into all kinds of music, pop music, soul, R&B. So back in the radio, I used to, um, listen to a lot of that actually because you could hear the local reggae music from the sound systems you didn't need the radio for that every day the music was just pounding and pounding from different blocks right but then when it came to the radio um, which was you know a lot of AM radio and FM uh, we'd be able to tune in to the American stations from uh, maybe Florida or just the southern part of the US they would leak into Jamaica so you'd hear stuff like, you know, the Beatles oh, and yeah. the Temptations, some Elvis Presley's, um, memorable songs that are more poppy. Yeah. We didn't have a sense of, um, I guess, 
belief in our own Jamaican music at the time, so it was still kind of suppressed in the underground, so you didn't hear a lot of that on, on the radio. So then when you go to Canada and you're, and you're 10 when you moved to Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what's, what's the experience like then? Because I, I have to imagine there's not, there's not a black-owned radio station at that point either. <laughs> no such thing. No, no, so there wouldn't, there, you wouldn't have heard of that. And you also wouldn't have the sound systems. You wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear reggae and dance hall coming from that, from that in, in Toronto as well. Like, what no. was your experience of listening to the radio in Canada when you got here? Well, when I got here, it was like 1972, 73. And uh, strangely enough, as a Jamaican who loves music, not just one kind of music, I was like a kid in a candy store. It was like uh, Canada represented to be a, a, a melting pot of all different kinds of music, which I was so happy just to get away from listening to reggae all the time because my uncle was a reggae DJ, so I had the sound system in my house, right? So I'd wake up to it and go to bed to it every day. Um, So when I came here, it was like a discovery of a whole bunch of different kinds of music. And I used to listen to uh, 1050 Chum and uh, 680, uh, which was like, I think, CFTR at the time. And and, and I'd look forward to like the top 100 countdowns at the end of the year. And it would be mostly rock and pop music, you know, um, Caucasian music, white people's music, yeah, hardly yeah. any black music leaking into the top 100. I'd mean, you know, one song maybe out of the top 100 would be black artists, but it didn't matter to me. I quickly got absorbed. You got to understand when I went to school, in 72, 73, you were like the only black kid in your in your public school, maybe one of four black people in your junior high school. You were. And then, yes, and other people in my position in that year in the Toronto area, yeah, right? Yeah, So um, it represented the, the market for consumption at the time. If there wasn't a demand for it, um, then people would feel no way about being obligated to produce it. But as years went by, the Jamaican West Indian black population in, in the whole metropolis kept growing and growing. And with that came a greater demand to give us the music that we like, that we want. But that being said, I heard a story about you that you started like a DIY radio station when you were in high school. Is that Absolutely, right? Can you yes, tell me that? Yes. Well, being a music enthusiast and a DJ at the time, I had the Fantastic Boys DJ um, service, so we did high school dances. This is before, like, when you were in high school, didn't you start a radio station? Was that Yes, yes. Yeah. So this was grade 12 and grade 13. Okay. And um, Victoria Park High School. So we had this spot called the, cafe, the, the, the Jet Fac, where I took theater art, so it was like a nice room like this, you know, with lights and... Um, this upper booth that had glass and you could look down on this area. And to me, it seemed like, you know, a great opportunity to, to put a radio, a, a mock radio station in. And all my friends at this time were into music. Like we're a very musical culture at that time. Yeah. People were into their new wave, their pop, their, you know, a um, little bit of reggae, a little bit of this. But um, I thought, you know, all these guys are so talented Maybe I could talk the school into having a mock radio station operate from that same facility. And they said, okay. So all it took was um, moving in a pair of turntables, an amplifier, and uh, lots of speaker wires running all the way down from one end of the school to the other into the cafeteria. And then there we, we would mount some big speakers in the calf. So every morning, every lunch, after school, we'd have these same guys, these you know, musical geniuses, um, play DJs um, and pipe the music into the cafeteria. And it was, uh, it's probably what got me into Ryerson actually, because in my interview, um, 
that came up, and I think they were very impressed that I had the uh, ambition to do that. But yeah, it was my first little taste of what was to come. So then, how does like how does uh, Fantastic Voyage start? Because that was on eighty-eight point one FM. That's the Ryerson at the time. That was the Ryerson radio station, right? Yeah, it was called something else in eighty-three. First, um, I forget the name of it. But when I first went to Ryerson. Um, the station was not interested in black music. They were very new wave and punk and on the ground. But because I was a first year student there, I did get a job there. But I was under pressure to play music that I didn't identify with. So after a while, it didn't work. They let me go because I didn't fit the programming schedule. But one day, it was John Jones and Anthony Leo, the program director, station manager. They called me and said, Ron, you can have a show now and you can play the music you want. And that was a turning point. That's when I gave it a title, the Fantastic Voyage Program. So that was late uh, 1983. Eventually transformed from being a show that played funk and rap because this was before the term hip-hop became commercialized yeah and uh then it later became the hip-hop show that it was maybe canada's first hip-hop radio show so what's the region posse saying y'all listening y'all down yeah and i want to say what's up to the people in glendower as well you know hip-hop is definitely live this year more than any other year and uh it's good to see the canadian artists putting themselves on the map elements of style that's going to be a hit. Bet you any money it's going to be a hit. And that's on the compilation record. You weren't just playing hip-hop from the States, though. You were also spotlighting local Toronto hip-hop acts. There, Maestro, Dream Warriors, Mishimi. How do you describe that era of Toronto's independent rap scene? How? Let's see. Um, innocent. You know, we, we did not know ourselves. We didn't understand our identity at the time. We were... Um, giving more love to American rappers and American culture, not because we didn't love our own culture, but we didn't understand what our culture was at the time. We were still searching for identity. Right. And we we had one thing that was different, though. We had a little bit of West Indian twang to our sound. People like Mishy Me and MC Rumble, what's different about them? They put a little reggae, a little dance hall, a little patwa in their sound. Follow me, I went to a dance, don't buy Chesali with Miss Fars in my life. That's what made them distinct. That's what made them different. You know? did, did you know it was different back then? Did you have any idea that yeah, oh, our thing is different? Absolutely, because the concerts were now, fe- the, the, at least the ones that I was doing, were not just featuring American artists, but we had Canadian artists open. And at some point we had them battle, right? And when you see the reaction and you look at the demographics of the audience that attended, you saw in the beginning a very... Uh, colored audience, a very black audience, and, and an audience that came from the poorest parts of Toronto. We, they came from the ghettos, the region, the Flemingons, the Jane and Finch, the jungles, and these areas maybe didn't like each other very much, but guess what? The music united them because they would you know, put away the, the bull crap at that point in time yeah. and just love music because they couldn't find it anywhere else. So before we had to listen to it, but now as more West Indians were populating Toronto, we were going out and congregating amongst ourselves where it was still black music and it was mostly black people attending. So you would see the reactions and you would see the love and you would see the response and you would hear the cheers and you would know as a DJ yeah. or as a promoter what's moving the people at the time. So you could see it coming. How did you end up being a concert promoter in the first place? Like, how did you end up like going from being a DJ to, to a concert promoter? No qualification whatsoever. It was more of a pressure from the telephone lines at CKLN 
that uh, used to feature people calling in wanting to hear their favorite songs, but now they didn't have a representative bringing these artists to them in concert. So they didn't care whether or not Rod Nelson was qualified. They made it a demand that I started bringing these artists to town. And <laughs> really, I, I like, spoiled. That was that's an actual that's an actual fact. If you're just tuning in, I'm Tom Power. This is Q. My guest is the pioneering Canadian radio broadcaster, DJ, concert promoter, and now rap artist, Ron Nelson. His debut album is made up of four different volumes. It's called 40 Years Too Late. Let, let, me, let me ask you about another sort of um, big kind of Toronto hip-hop moment that, that you were present for. So... You made it a point, to, as you mentioned, to spotlight local, spotlight local rap acts on your radio show and at, at your concerts as well. And yes. you're telling me a couple of stories so far about like what it was like to watch people come from up from New York and battle Canadian Canadian rappers. So there's this legendary battle I wanted to ask you about. It's between a young Bishy Me and Sugar Love, Sugar Love from from New York, a fellow, fellow female battler. What do you remember about that? Well, I remember it was hard to get a really popular female rapper. A lot of people didn't know who Sugar Love was. Um, but I had to trick people in order to get them to battle. I wasn't completely honest in telling them, hey, I'm booking you for a battle. I'm like, I'm booking you to come to Canada for a show. And then you tell them it's a battle afterwards. But I remember Sugar Love had the sportsmanship to say, okay, it's a battle. Sure, I'll come. She was just happy to get a gig right. to get out of America at the time to come into Canada. But I remember that Mishy Me... Uh, she had a little secret weapon there, and you touched on it before, but it's like the home team advantage, okay? When you look at the demographics of the audience, they're not just black people or rap people. There's West Indian people, and the Americans don't have that West Indian twang to that to this day. There, there's no loyal to it, loyalty to it. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So um, when, when it was Mishimi's turn to rhyme and battle, she would draw back for that Jamaican patwa, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and she does it really good, and, and that's what took her to victory that, that night, the fact did that you, she could incorporate that. Did you know she was going to win when you went? When you Nobody knew who would win. Again, we're fascinated by American culture, right? So we, they were expected to win. It's just like, again, Canada World Cup. We're, we were the underdogs. We're there to learn. We're there to benefit from the experience. And my whole frustration, again, was that Canada's got the talent, but it's not getting exposed uh, deservingly and properly. So that's why the battle came into effect was if we if we have these artists battle, then we're going to make world news and then they're going to have respect for Canada. And I think some of that was achieved. So this is something I've been, I've been curious about with you for a, a long time. You eventually turned your focus to reggae and dancehall, kind of where we started, right? We started with talking about you with, with reggae and dancehall. You did, as you mentioned earlier, kind of pass the reins of your radio show over to a very young DJ X and DJ Mastermind who became really important pioneering hip-hop broadcasters in Toronto and in Canada in their own right. But... I think there's a big part of your story that I'm, I've always been curious about, which is there seems to be this part of the article, which is at some point Ron Nelson turned away from hip hop. Why, why did you, why, what prompted that? <sighs> Let's see. Um, I had lost a decade and a half of my life. I, I bought a house. I lost my house. You know, um, the reason I bought a house was just to have a recording studio in it. 
I was not thinking progressively. Other people are buying houses now and having families and thinking about their future and stuff like that. I realized I had been out there on the streets beating it out for years had gone by, a decade had gone by, and I've never had a decent job. You know, I, up until that point, I'd never been employed. So I'm there hustling on the street legally without selling drugs and stuff like that, but I'm still watching other people around me grow up and I'm not growing up. So I recognize some of that. I'm like, I need to make a decision here about my future. And at the same time, hip hop had become commercialized. I felt to some degree I had done my work and I had done my part and it was time for other people to grow up and, and do their parts. And there's one other factor too. Hip hop is, is very youth oriented. It belongs to young people. I was getting older. So the, the, the X generation, the mastermind generation, the DJ power generation, the thrust gen generation, all those kids, the Mishy Me, the maestros, the rumbling strongs, you know, they wanted to have their turn now. And the, the most unselfish thing I could do is say, here, it's the right thing. So I basically passed on the baton. I was so busy um, doing so many things at once, as I said, recording studio engineer and uh, promoter and DJ and um, on top of it, radio broadcaster. And it just went on and on. You had to do so many things at once. It was almost a relief to say, okay, you guys take it on. Since the 80s and the 90s, we've seen the first two Black-owned radio stations in Canadian history make a name for themselves. you got Flow 93.5 FM, and you have G98.7 FM. That's 20 years combined of Black ownership. So G98.7 recently became Flow 98.7. But just broadly, like, what, what are your thoughts on the legacy of Black-owned radio in Canada? Uh, Big question. No, no, I'm right in there with that question. I mean, that's, I studied radio and television in Ryerson and, and, you know, there is some value to having a degree in that, even though when those stations formed, the one thing I was disappointed in was nobody there had a broadcasting degree. They chose to, uh, I guess, have a league of broadcasters that represent a different mindset, um, so they took the best MCs and DJs from our DJ street culture and put them on the radio. That's been a mistake with urban radio for the last 20 years is they have not sought to get personalities who can uh, come from a radio point of view. That, that's what they're good at, not being the guy in the mic saying, yeah, cut it up, cut it up. You know what I mean? So uh, it's, it, you know, in, in a way it's, that's okay. You can kind of say, look, we don't want to be like, the generations before. Um, I think also Canadian radios is a little gutless, commercial radio, that is, only because I think we've, and it's a very Canadian characteristic, but we are followers instead of leaders. You know, we, I don't know what artists I can say that Canadian radio is ever broken, but American break their artists all the time. You know, including they break Canadian artists. Yeah, they, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. We break more American artists than we do our own artists. Yeah. No radio station programmers to this, to, to currently, uh, if you're a program director at a radio station uh, that has an ability to, to, to squeeze in more black music, then um, I haven't seen anyone really take a lead and say, you know, I'm going to stand behind 
this artist or that artist because they're really good and, and they know it in their heart that they can use their power to influence and change the demographic and create more sales and create a superstar out of Canada. I mean, Flo was uh, great for Drake, right? I mean, it's not, again, it's not, it's not kind of narrow like that, but if you remember the days of Flo in their first 10 years, they played more Drake than any, and partly because they were obliged to play Canadian content, right? But it's got to be more than Drake that's out there. Yeah. So I think radio uh, should have a responsibility, commercial radio should have a, a responsibility to try and, and have a little more gut and be like the American radio stations that have a, a sense of instinct and intuition and, and gamble and and take chances with their programming instead of following somebody else's trend. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It is Hip Hop Week here on Q, so you're hearing my conversation with Ron Nelson, someone who was around for the birth of Canadian hip-hop, has seen it grow from a small community facing systemic barriers to becoming the sound of hip-hop all over the world. Ron, he is 60 years old. He has just released his debut album of his own music, and we're going to talk a little bit about that because... I mean, I have conversations like this all the time in this show. People think that hip-hop is a young man's game. People think there's hip-hop has to constantly be developing. We can never look back. Ron has a lot to say about that. Take a listen. Try and think of how many rappers you have in your collection that are 60. Not many. People aren't supposed to rap at my age. Well, let me, let, let me, let me talk with you about that because... I got to talk to Black Thought recently, um, Black Thought of the Roots, um, and I asked him this question, and I want to ask you as well, because we'll talk about some of the songs in a second. Sure. But do you think that enough space is being made in hip-hop catering to an older hip-hop audience? Uh, no. <laughs> I think it's a great opportunity for me and anybody else who wants to do such that. Hip-hop... As I said, it's it's really young people's music. But guess what? The audience that has has grown up with rap now, they are older. And when I go to my my barber, for example, you know, he plays strictly old school. Um, one of the things that I realize is that no one has tried to cater to that. And excuse my ignorance, maybe I'm wrong, but to me, the oldest rapper that's still active is Chuck D from Public Enemy, yeah. 62. Yeah. I don't know who's older than that. I can't find another Canadian rapper who is 60 years old and still trying to put up music right now. So I'm going against the odds because I don't feel my age. Hip hop has given me this youthfulness where I've got a lot of energy in me. I've got four decades of contribution to this uh, industry that's qualified me to have something to say that might appeal to a market that is non-youth and maybe a little more grown up. Can you tell me uh, tell me about Roach on the Wall on this on this record? Get rid of that roach. Yeah. I gotta have faith. If it's never too late, I'm dropping my first album. Forty years too late. How much trouble will it make when you dig through the craze? Eighty-two or eighty-eight? Forty years, I was great. Critics got me grounded. Some do 
So DJ X produced the track and he says, I understand you more than your other producers understand you because I've grown up with you. So I know you have this little side to you that's just a little more, you know, funny and, you know, you don't have to sound hardcore or anything. So basically it's an analogy as if to say that the roach is also a survivor through time, right? We haven't been able to get rid of the roach yet. So I'm here whether you like it or not. And I'm going to bring my own style, my own flavor. Uh, fortunately, I'm, I'm, like I said, in a position where even though people may not like my style or my tone or my patter as a, an artist, um, no one can say, Ron, you shouldn't make an album because I've, I've earned the right to make it. So I don't know if there's going to be a future for me as an artist, but I'll tell you, I'm enjoying doing this and it's been a lot of fun and hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll be able to put out more albums. Can you tell me about Culture Pirate? On there? I'm a culture pirate. I got the knack. I'm back in black. I'm on the attack. You took for me. I'm taking it back. Fact, you're guilty of stealing from black. Um, what, what were you trying to get across in that song? Tell me a little, like... Uh, well, it's, it's very easy to understand that black people started rock and roll or, or we, we, we had our foot in the door, but there was a time that people probably have heard about where, um, you know, there are people like Elvis Presley around and because of the racist institutions that existed back then, when you were a black artist making great music, you weren't able to benefit from it by having it released and distributed properly because you were black. But at the same time, people like Elvis were legally able to come along, watch you perform, and then go and recreate that music and then put it out themselves and not give proper credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole history that, that people don't know. So that song is basically trying to say, look, in this song here... Uh, I've named a lot of popular song titles, right? And I hope it upsets them a little bit because it's not quite plagiarism, but I'm trying to say that it's only rock and roll, but we started that. The ink was white, but the page was black, um, et cetera, et cetera. We're taking a little bit back from everyone who's culture pirated in the history of music. I mean, but you've been around for so much of the history of this music, you know? I just want to close like this. Like, it's the 40th anniversary of your Fantastic Voyage radio show. It's the 50th anniversary of hip-hop's birth. And you are officially hitting your 60s. It's my 60th year. <laughs> what crosses your mind when you think about all these milestones? Um, I wish I had some money as a result of doing all of that stuff. But... Um, I think money is still a, a bit of a struggle for me right now. Um, so it's nice to have accolades, but I measure success partly with achieving some financial success as well and playing your cards right and stuff. I haven't, I'm not saying I haven't had the opportunity to make good money and I'm not saying I'm broke either, but I'm just saying that um, in this position, the only thing that's missing is a cherry on the top. You know, before it's, it's all said and done and I, I get really old, I'd like to just have a little peace of mind at some stage and be able to, like, you know, go on a vacation and relax and not yeah. think about my bills and stuff like that. So I'm just keeping it real. You know, a lot of people, they pretend. I ain't pretending. I'm not ashamed of my current status or anything like that. I've really, my, I'm 60 now and I've only had one job in my life and that was teaching at York University, you know, and that lasted for 11 years. So for all those other years, I was on the streets.
and I survived. I got to tell you, man, it's, it's a great honor to get the chance to talk to you, to be honest. Thank you. Um, it's, it, we've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. A long time. Um, and I just want to thank you for everything you've done because the work that you did in the early days in Toronto hip hop has, has helped the country grow into the cultural powerhouse that it is right now. And uh, thanks for coming in and talking to me about it. Oh, you're very welcome. And thanks for supporting my album and my legacy. My conversation with a pioneer of Canadian hip-hop, Ron Nelson. Uh, if you want to see that conversation, it's available on our YouTube channel. Uh, later this week, you're going to hear my conversation with another pioneer of Canadian hip-hop, the legendary Maestro Fresh West, who came up a lot in our conversation. I'll also say that on YouTube, uh, where you can find uh, the video of our conversation, I heard, if you look up like Ron Nelson, Fantastic Voyage... Someone put up a bunch of the old radio shows from the 80s on YouTube, and they're worth checking out to hear what Canadian hip-hop sounded like back then in Canadian hip-hop radio. So, so check that out. Ron Nelson's debut album is called 40 Years Too Late, and it's out now. That's it for this episode of Q. Yeah, Hip Hop Week all week on Q. I'm really excited for you. You're going to hear my conversation with Maestro a little bit later this week. You're going to hear my conversation with Mishi Me a little bit later this week. Big celebration of Canadian hip hop. We have some guests. I don't know. We have some guests that I'm really excited you're going to be hearing in the next little while. Uh, the other episode we put up today is sort of about the now of Canadian hip hop. Havaya Mighty, one of the best rappers in this country right now, won the Juno. Not that long. I don't know. It wasn't last year. Yeah, yeah. A year before last. Incredible rapper. She has a brand new album. It's her most personal yet. She'll be talking to Q guest host Talia Schlanger. Check that out wherever you got this podcast. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.